you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to be in John chapter 19. Uh, that's where we're picking it up in our, in our journey this morning through the gospel of John. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through 22. If you don't uh, have your Bible with you, like, and if you don't own one, you should see one around you. You're welcome uh, to take that one. We'd love for you to have that one. That one's a paperback. But listen, if the person beside you isn't using theirs, um, just grab it, man. It's okay. It's probably nicer than the paperback. I'm not telling you to steal it. You just use it for now. You can return it at the end of the service. It'll be a nice conversation starter for you and a, and a new friend. Um, last week, last week we heard Pilate declare. He, he, he makes his public pro- proclamation three different times of Jesus' innocence. And three different times, on three different times, he tried to let Jesus go. He wanted to. He wanted to set Jesus free. We see that here. And and we're reminded of how in Matthew 27, 24, uh, Pilate, we're told in that scene, we we talked about this in our community group last week, how he took water, he took a bowl of water, and he washed his hands, and he said this, it, it says this in Matthew 27, that he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. That's what he said, but we, but we know that's not how it works. Um, it doesn't work that way at all. Pilate wants it to work that way, but that symbolic act of, of washing, in this case, doesn't remove any guilt at all. Uh, No more than baptism actually washes anyone. The symbol here doesn't accomplish the thing that he's pointing it to. You see, knowing the truth but not upholding the truth, that's sin. And so water or no water, Pilate's guilty. And in the end, in his weakness, he went against his own convictions. He acted out of accordance with the truth. And the culture, the mob mentality prevailed... And the last line of verse 16 said this, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I wonder if you've ever felt the weight of that in your own sin. When you go against your convictions, when you act out of accordance with the truth, if you've ever thought to yourself that you were delivering Jesus to be crucified. That's where we're going to pick it up today. That's where we are in the story. So if you are willing and able, would you stand with me now? As we continue walking with Jesus on his, on his journey to the cross. I'm actually going to begin there in 16 again. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do ask now that you would settle our hearts here, uh, that you would 
uh, bring us into fellowship with you in a way that we didn't expect this morning when we woke up, when we ate our breakfast, when we got dressed and came here. Lord, I pray that you would surprise us, that you would, that you would shine so brightly that our blind eyes would have no choice but to see you. And that you would speak and shout to us with such ferocity that our ears, our deaf ears, would not be unable to hear you. And I pray that you would awaken our souls this morning. I pray that you would move me aside and that you would come and do work. As we just sang, Lord, don't let my lisping, stammering tongue stand in the way of what you would say to us today. And I beg that of you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. There they crucified him. It's just four words. Just four words there in verse 18. It's actually only three words in the original language. There they crucified him. Those are all the words that John uses to describe what happened to Jesus that day. There they crucified him. That's all it took for him to communicate what Jesus endured. And that's because for anybody reading this, for anybody hearing this story in the first century, anybody in that original audience, in that original context in which John was speaking, when they heard that, any citizen of the Roman Empire, when they heard the word crucified, they knew exactly what Jesus experienced because... They had seen it because they'd seen it. They were acquainted with it. They were familiar with it. They would have seen that process from start to finish. They would have seen it many times before this. And so they would have felt the weight of those four words. There they crucified him. But you know, if we aren't careful, if you and I aren't careful we can become kind of numb to it. Like we can become desensitized to the whole process that's wrapped up and there in that word crucified. Because we hang, like we hang crosses in our church buildings. We put them on our serving trays and these are nice and they're beautiful. You might even have one hanging around your neck and that's, I'm not knocking that. I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm just telling you, this is a beautiful cross. Actually, one of our members made this in the first Sunday when we were in here uh, and it was just a blank wall up here with no awesome pallet wood recycled from the neighbor next door. We, we, we had nothing. He walks in, he hangs this cross on there and we all went, okay, now it looks like a church. Isn't that the symbol? And it is beautiful. And these are nice, plain. These showed up on our porch as we were planting this church. We have no idea where they came from. Somebody bought them, mailed them, had my address evidently, came home one day and there was communion plates on our front porch. Because one of our friends or one of our family members said, you know what, they're going to need that. And they are beautiful. It's what we do with the cross. And so we, we see the cross so often as a decoration, as an accessory. And because of that, if we aren't careful, we can sort of, we can sort of sanitize the whole thing. And we can lose our grip on what Paul called the offense of the cross. But you see, they would have gotten it. 
they would have understood how offensive the cross is because they would have known that Jesus, even before he got there, had been scourged. They would have known that he had been beaten to within an inch of his life. They would have known that when the soldiers strapped the cross beam to him there in verse 17 for him to carry, that it would have been strapped to a torn and bleeding body. You see, the Roman scourging wasn't just your ordinary beating. It was a lesson in pain and suffering. And so Jesus would have been stripped naked. He would have been made to get on his knees. His hands would have been tied in front of him to a block of wood, allowing the soldiers to have optimal access to his back and his ribs and other vital areas around his body. And the goal was to use the whip. This whip with bits of bone and glass and rock tied on the end of it was a short whip meant to do as much damage as possible, but not to kill them. And they were good at it. But even as good as they were at that, they, it wasn't a rare thing for the condemned one to die there in that process. Victims of crucifixion were ultimately, they would ultimately die of suffocation, or they died from exposure to the elements, or from blood loss, all while struggling to lift their body weight on their nail-pierced feet in order to grab just a hint of oxygen into their asphyxiating lungs. It was an excruciating way to die. It's literally where we get the word excruciating from. It comes from the word crucifixion. One commentator said the basic point was to combine shame, shame and with physical anguish as a sufferer hung in the air slowly and torturously to die. And that's the first thing I want us to see this morning. It's just Christ's crucifixion. I don't have a neat point for you. It's just to see Christ's crucifixion. And John gives us some details that we should notice. And I know that I say this often. I, I do say this a lot. But, but we need to learn to notice the details. We need to see the details. Because we've probably heard this story before, especially this time of year. In fact, I was telling everybody before we uh, came in here this morning as we were kind of praying through the service that uh, I had a professor at South Carolina who told me that Jesus died on the cross on April 7th in the year 30. That was, that, and by the way, that was on the final exam. All right, that wasn't debatable, wasn't up for, for me to go, well, are you sure? No, no, that was the date, April 7th, 30. If you look at scholarship, they'll tell you the 6th or 7th of April, somewhere in there is the point, and that is mixed with the Bible, uh, the calendar, and then some extra biblical accounts of some solar phenomenon that happened in that time period. So April 7th, the year 30, here we are on April 7th, the year 2019, and we're looking at Jesus at the cross. And so we need to be there. Like we need to see it. I, I, I need you to smell the air on that hill that day. And so the first thing we're told there in verse 17, look at that, is that he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So what you need to envision in that is the idea of the Nazi party, right? You've seen these pictures, the Nazis, and they've got the, the Jews or their prisoners digging their own grave before they execute them and put them into it. That's the idea here. That with every shovel, with every step, with every movement towards the cross, he's feeling the weight of what is coming and knowing what's going to happen to him. 
Some have compared this to the scene in Genesis 22 where Isaac is carrying the wood for the burnt offering up the hill with Abraham where he says, Daddy, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got the knife, but, but, but where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham said he would provide. Jesus is forced to carry the wood. Now, the three other Gospels, all three of the synoptic Gospels, agree that Jesus, too severely weakened by the scourging, he didn't make it all the way. He didn't carry it all the way, but that the Romans conscripted a man called Simon of Cyrene. Right? So that's a historical figure. Simon, we know his name, we know his hometown. Simon of Cyrene to assist him, to carry it the rest of the way for him. Mark even includes the detail that this man was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so we have this historical witness of who was there while this was happening. That's the first thing. He was made to carry that cross. He was made to bear the wood. The second thing we see is that he was taken outside of the city. He was taken out beyond the walls, outside of the gate, outside of the camp, however, you, however it connects to you. But Jesus was not allowed to die in the camp. He was taken outside, just like the sacrifices that we see in Leviticus 16. They were brought in to make atonement, brought in to make atonement, but then they were carried outside the camp. And even the author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 13, he says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to (laughs) sanctify the people through his own blood. John records Jesus saying, I am the door. Here we see him living up to that. You see, he's the sacrifice that was taken outside, being removed from the people. In a very real way, Jesus is being alienated from those whom he came to save. And then John adds in verse 18 that when Jesus was crucified, he says that they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Mark tells us that those other two criminals were robbers. That they were robbers. You go, okay. That word for robber is the very same word that we see used for Barabbas in chapter 18. And so it's entirely possible that these other two men on the cross are associates of Barabbas, the one who was set free, that they've been in it with him, and it just amplifies the truth that Jesus truly did take the place that had been reserved for Barabbas at the cross. It's that he was numbered with the transgressors. It's Jesus fulfilling what we see of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 12, right? Where Jesus was counted among the transgressors, placed right in the middle of them all. For all to see, that's that's where his seat at the table was. It was right there with the robbers and the criminals. That's who Jesus spent his last moments with. I've heard the story several times, and, and you may have too, about Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. You may know that name. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. And he tells the story of one Saturday morning uh, when he was there working at the church and a visitor dropped by. And this visitor just so happened to be the captain of the, of the RMS Mauritania, which is the sister ship of the Lusitania, which was sunk in World War II. It was the largest passenger ship in the world at the time. And the captain told Dr. Barnhouse how each year, 23 different times a year, he would make this transatlantic uh, crossing. And how every time when he, got, uh, when he was coming down from Newfoundland into the Western Hemisphere, how he could pick up the broadcast of Dr. Barnhouse's radio program uh, coming out of Boston. 
And so he decided on, on this one, he said, this is what he said, this is what the captain said. He said, as I came in this week, I thought to myself, I've got 24 hours in New York. I'm going to see Dr. Barnhouse. So he made the trip from New York to Philadelphia to, to meet Dr. Barnhouse. And evidently, this pastor was very straightforward with the captain. I, I really hope to grow to be this straightforward with everyone he, because he just came right out and asked this sea captain, sir, have you been born again? The captain replied, that's what I came to see you about. Now, by this point, as they walked through the church building, and uh, they, were, they were kind of given the tour, they came to this classroom, and there was a chalkboard there. And, and Dr. Barnhouse went to the chalkboard, and he drew three crosses, one, two, three. And underneath the first one, he wrote the word in, I-N. He wrote the word in. Underneath the third cross, just like the first, he wrote that same word. He wrote the word in. But underneath the middle cross, he wrote the words not in. Not in. He said, do you understand what I mean when I say that those men who died with Jesus had sin within them? Do you understand what I mean when I say that those men who died on either side of Jesus, that they had sin within them? And the captain thought and said, yes. Yes, I do. And I know that Christ did not have sin within him. And so then over the first cross and the third cross, Dr. Barnhouse wrote the word on. He wrote the word on. And he asked the captain if he knew what that meant, but the man seemed confused. And so the pastor asked him this. He said, have you ever run through a red light? And uh, the man said, yes. (laughs) Then he asked the man, were you caught? And the man, this sea captain, said, no. No, I wasn't caught. And Dr. Barnhouse explained. He said, well, in running that red light, you had sin in you. If you had been caught, you would have had sin on you. He said, the thieves were bearing the penalty of God. And then he wrote another on over the top of the middle cross. And he said, he bore your sin. There was no sin in him, but the sin was laid on him. As you know, one of those thieves on the cross that day was forgiven. He recognized the the innocence of Jesus, and Jesus told that man on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Dr. Barnhouse took the chalk And he pointed to the first criminal and he drew a big X over the word on. And from there he drew an arrow over to Jesus. And he said, you see, his sins rested on Christ by virtue of his faith in Christ. And then he said this. He asked the sea captain, how about you? How about you? Where does your sin rest right now? Is it on you? Or have you trusted in Jesus? You see, if we see Jesus and only see him on the cross, we really miss the point. What we have to understand is what was on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. You see, when we understand that the suffering of Jesus on the cross was just as much a spiritual suffering as it was a physical suffering, the idea of taking up our cross and following him has even greater depth of meaning. This is what Kent Hughes has called uh, the diagram of love. And so it's not just that we see the cross, but that when we see the cross, we see the cost. 
It's at the cross that the Son of God gave His life for us, that, that, that He took the sin that was in me, He took the sin that was in you, He took the sin that was in us, and He had no sin Himself, but He took the sin that was in us and He took it on Himself, that it was put on Him at the cross. You see, the physical agony, which was beyond anything that I can even begin to comprehend, was nothing compared to the spiritual agony as the perfect Son of God, the one who knew no sin, who had no sin in Him, became sin for us, had our sin put on Him so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the grace of God in Christ. It's that we are forgiven. It's that our sin is taken away and that it's placed on a substitute. And through Him, we are redeemed and made new. That's what we see at the cross. We see our sin placed on His shoulders. All my guilt, all my shame, all the baggage of my life, naked and exposed, but it's not me hanging there covered in it. It's on Him. It's on Jesus. And so at the cross, I see, we see our Savior. Most of the crowd there didn't understand it. They did not get it that day. All they saw was a pathetic Galilean who had a following for a minute, but now had nothing. That's what they saw. But there was something else. Look back at verse 19. Verse 19, it says, As Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Uh, The Jewish leaders did not like that inscription. They didn't want to be associated with this torn and mangled criminal hanging on the cross and bleeding. You see, he represented everything that they hated. His existence, his very existence offended him, offended them. But Pilate wasn't budging. He wasn't about to change it. He was was taking one more shot here at these men who had shouted for Jesus to die. And he said, what I have written, I have written. And the meaning there is that it is forever. With all the earthly authority that he could muster, Pilate was himself making an eternal declaration. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We saw Christ's crucifixion. And here we see Christ's coronation. You see, the word there for inscription is the same word that we would use for a title today. It's where we get that word title from. One, one of the effects that the Romans intended with this was uh, with, with such a brutal form of execution, right, was that it would serve as a deterrent. Now, people would see what's happening. They'd go, I better not get in trouble because that's what will happen to me, right? Uh, capital punishment has always served as, as that sort of deterrent. And as Jesus was struggling to make it to the place of his execution, a soldier would have been walking in front of him carrying a sign, the same sign that was nailed above his head. They would have been carrying this on a stick. And as he walked through the town, he's carrying this sign. And they would have done this for every criminal, saying this is what they're guilty of. And it was for two purposes. The first was 
and to let it be known that if you do what this guy does, this is what happens to you. The second was, and this is actually officially the Roman policy of the time, which is hard to believe, it was so that if there was a witness who could testify that this person wasn't guilty of this crime, that they should probably come forward now because time was running out. Nobody came forward that day for Jesus. Nobody came forward. And so that's the title that Pilate gave to him. And in a very counterintuitive way, this is the coronation of our king, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. A few weeks back, I was here uh, one Sunday morning getting stuff ready for worship. If, if you've ever come here about 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday, you know there's a lot of movement happening. There's people practicing in here. There's uh, people getting stuff ready in, in various other parts of, the, of our space. And, and so I was here folding the worship guides. And one of the little kids was helping me stack them. Her parents were here practicing to lead us in worship. And, and so she was there uh, helping me. And evidently, we had run out of things to talk about because she asked if we could listen to music. And uh, I thought, okay, I guess I'm not that interesting. So yeah, what would you like to listen to? And she said one word, frozen. Frozen. I was like, it's like the soundtrack, Frozen. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. I, I'm, I, knew, I knew what she was talking about. It took me a while to catch up, but we were there, and so we turned on the uh, Frozen soundtrack right up there in the uh, conference room area, and some of you were witnesses to this, um, and she proceeded to belt out at the top of her little lungs every single word to the songs, and she was... I knew some of the words, okay, I'm out. I have just enough pride left to admit that I, I knew some of them. Not all of them, but some. And, uh, and she was very disappointed that I did not know all of the words to the song. In fact, I don't know that I've ever felt like more of a failure on a Sunday morning. But um, you, you see, the story Frozen actually begins with a coronation. And that story, and if you haven't seen it, welcome to 2019. And that story, the, the orphan princess, the heir to the throne, now old enough to lead, is to formally take the crown. And everyone is excited, okay? It is a big, big deal. The country is ready to celebrate. People are dancing and breaking out into song. Um, all the creatures are singing because it's a Disney movie, right? So why wouldn't they, obviously? Um, they're getting out the good silverware for this, okay? The good dishes are coming out. It's a big deal. It's coronation day, and everyone gets announced. Every single person who enters into the ball gets announced. Their title, their title is affirmed. Their title is pronounced so that everyone can hear. You know, as crazy as it might sound, Pontius Pilate served in many ways as the royal herald, as the official tasked to present Jesus to the world. And we see that he took great care in doing it. We're told there in verse 20 that it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Do you catch that? In Aramaic, which by the way, that, that actual word is in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. It's the reality that, that it was written in every language so that all of the world could hear this proclamation, that all of the world could hear this title being proclaimed. And we're present today at this coronation. That's where we are. My title, if I walked in that room, would, would say something like sinner. It would say jealous 
It would say idolatrous. It would say covetous. It would say liar. Probably would say thief. My title would say Adam of Columbia, more guilty than you can imagine. That's what my title would say. If they, if they were honest, if I walked into the room and they were just honest and they pronounced me in all my glory, they would say, Adam, more guilty than you could ever imagine. That's what would be on my card. But you see, in Christ, I have a new title. It says, I'm still more guilty than you could ever imagine. But now it just says one word. Well, Adam of Columbia, forgiven. Forgiven. Jesus was announced as the king of those who rejected him. Today we proclaim him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And I know this isn't a Disney movie, but the earth and all her creatures are in on it too. As the king is proclaimed, this is what we're told in Isaiah 55. It says, for you shall go out in joy. He's talking to you now. I know Isaiah is really old at this point. He's talking to you. He says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And then this is what he says. He says, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You see, today we sing the song of the King of Kings. We fill the earth with with his glory. And we join him. We join the mountains. We jump the hi- we join the hills. We we clap. Maybe Christians and particularly Presbyterians should clap more, man. Like we should shout a little more often. I'm not a sh- I'm a quiet person. I should shout the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. It's Easter. Well, not today. But in two more Sundays, it's Easter. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, right? And then after that's Easter Sunday. If you don't shout during this time of year, you probably don't shout any time of year. I want us to break that mold, man. We should be shouting that here is the king, the the crucified king. This is our king. This is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again that you give us voices, that you give us hearts, that you give us lungs that breathe, that we are here present today. Father, I pray that you would forgive my silence. I pray that you would. I pray that you would forgive me for not not shouting more, not clapping more. I pray that you'd forgive me for waiting for the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the hills to start singing the song. I pray that you'd forgive me for thinking I have to have just the right words. You know me. You know I never have just the right words. Lord, help me to quit waiting. I pray that you would forgive me for being so fearful for being so concerned that somebody might not like me. Lord, I don't care if they like me. I need them to love you. 
Lord, I pray that we would go out today as people who care that our friends, that our neighbors, that our family members, that the community around us doesn't know you. And there hasn't been an X drawn over their sin. And that sin hasn't been put on you. But Lord, I pray now that you would give us a heart for the people around us. Help us to be ferociously concerned. Lord, I pray that you would help me to love you and speak of you as much as that little girl loves you and sings of Frozen. pray that you'd put a new song in our heart and don't let it just stay there. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.